Welcome to This Must Be The Place, a podcast about communities and the people who build, support, and live in them. I'm your host, Greg Dunlap. So in 1994, a friend of mine told me that he had heard a new band that he thought I would like and asked if I wanted to go see them play with them. The band was called Low, and they had just released their first album, If I Could Live In Hope. And I thought, sure, let's go. So I walked into the empty bottle in Chicago with no idea what to expect, and I was utterly and completely floored. Lowe consisted of married couple Alan Sparhawk and Mimi Parker, along with a rotating cast of bass players, and they were quiet and intense and almost glacially slow. But more than anything, I was struck by Parker's achingly beautiful voice. I'm far from the first person to refer to it as angelic, but I'll be damned if I have any better words to describe it. I was a rabid fan from the moment they hit the stage. And I mentioned in this interview that when you've been following a band for 30 years, they start to feel like family. You look forward to seeing them again, to experiencing the communal aspect of people coming together to hear their music. It's like a reunion. And I always felt this about going to see Low, but I was particularly excited to see them in 2022 because their last two albums, Double Negative and Hey What, were completely phenomenal. They were like a complete reconstruction of everything I knew about the band, and yet at the same time, it couldn't possibly have been anyone else. I had tickets to see three of their shows, and I was so looking forward to them in a way that I hadn't for quite a while. But it was not to be. In spring of 2022, Lowe began canceling tour dates, and news started filtering out that Mimi Parker was battling ovarian cancer. Some of these dates got rescheduled, but more cancellations than followed, And on November 6th, the band announced that Mim had passed away at the age of 55. Now, I've experienced loss in my communities before, but this one hit harder than most. And based on the reaction from the band's fan base, I was not alone. So I invited an old friend of mine, Bruce Adams, to come on the podcast and talk about Lowe and what made them so special. Bruce is the co-founder of the influential record label Cranky, which has made a name for itself by releasing adventurous and experimental music since 1993. And Cranky released three LPs and two EPs by Lowe in the 90s. Bruce is also the author of You're With Stupid, Cranky Chicago and the Reinvention of Indie Music. And in this episode, we talk about what made Lowe so special and why their fans connected with the band and their music so deeply. And we also discuss Cranky and what makes Chicago such a unique place for music and music scenes. Now in the show notes, I've linked to a playlist of the music we discuss, including songs from Low, as well as some of the other cranky bands. If you aren't familiar with this music, I urge you to check it out. It's emotional and impactful and very special. Thanks for listening. All right, thanks for joining us here today, Bruce. Thank you, Greg, for the invitation. It's great to be here. Sure. So uh, why don't you tell me about where you were at around the time you started Cranky and what kind of motivated you to get the label going in the first place? I was working at a wholesale music distribution company in Chicago called Cargo. It was a subsidiary of a bigger Canadian company that also had a London office. So my colleagues and I were hearing and unpacking and shipping records from all over the United States, Canada, the UK mostly. And uh, my coworker, Joel Leschke, was a domestic buyer there, one of the domestic buyers there. And he and I were often complaining about 
the sameness of a lot of what we were hearing coming down the pipeline. Then almost parallel, the uh, cargo itself was so amazingly disorganized and dysfunctional that uh, like most Americans on a Friday afternoon, we were asking ourselves a question, my boss incompetent or crazy? <laughs> and uh, we were we discussed starting a record label sort of as a sort of as a point of discussion, sort of a bar stool or a lunchtime conversation. And uh, one day, Joel motioned me into his office. He had a seven-inch single by a new band from Richmond, Virginia, called La Bradford. He put it on the turntable, played it for me. It was completely unlike anything else we were hearing. And we thought to ourselves, this is the band we could start a record label around. They're unique enough that it would distinguish our label from every other uh, outfit that was working at the time. So we decided to step off the ledge. Uh, Joel contacted LeBradford. I uh, went out and did all the things you need to do to set up a business. And uh, we went from there. The it's first, yeah. No, go ahead. The first record uh, on the label called Cranky was uh, a double LP by LeBradford. I should also mention that the name Cranky was inspired by Joel's girl, girlfriend at the time, Jennifer Jones. It's it's interesting because, you know, when I think back to that time and when I first heard La Bradford after you released the record and saw them for the first time after you brought them to town. I mean, you're right. They were a very unique band and it was and it did sound very different like when you when you heard that was that something that where you thought we want to do stuff more like this aesthetic or was it more just let's start this and put this band out and see where it goes of the latter mm -hmm. we really had no idea how far things would progress uh we had no real aesthetic in mind uh in a lot of ways Le Bradford sort of set that for us but um, we were thinking about, I mean, this was the era of the Sub Pop Singles Club, mm -hmm. of Seven Inch Singles. Uh, we were, we were aware that there were, there were, uh, there's a lot of hay in the haystack, but not so many diamonds. <laughs> and we thought we found a diamond and, uh, people responded to what we were doing, uh, and we had sort of a Venn diagram of where our individual tastes overlapped. And uh, we began to find and communicate with bands that worked in that area. We were very fortunate. We worked at a, a big distributor. Joel was the buyer. Things came across his desk all the time. He was in touch with a lot of people. And uh, we were able to sort of begin to build a, a roster around that around those opportunities did, did like the bands who seem to be because i think about the bands that you released the other bands that you started to release you know stars of the lid and godspeed and things like that and 
And they are not the same, but they all seem to mine the same territory in a way. Like, did they come to you and say, oh, here's a label that's doing stuff like us? Or did you find them mostly? I would say it was about 50-50. The, let's say the first 10 records on the on the label, Jessamine, Bowery Electric, uh, Dadama, the Spiny Anteaters, those were all bands we discovered via uh, cargo and other areas, other places we were looking around at. The, uh, the first Stars of the Lit album uh, was released on an, another record label, and we instantly wanted to work with them. That took a while to come together due to some commitments on their part. Um, Godspeed, you Black Emperor, sent us a a cassette of their uh, debut album. They were just looking for a show in Chicago and wanted some help finding the show. Um, in that case, uh, we asked a very simple question. Do you have plans to put out a CD? And they said no. And we said, well, we'd like to do that. And they said, okay. Uh, but in every every instance is a little different than, than another. But in general things began to sort of show up along the spectrum, what I would call the aesthetic spectrum of Cranky. Because on one side, we had purely atmospheric or mm. uh, ambient groups. On the other side, we, we had a band like Jessamine who were highly rhythmic, but who still were working sort of a uh, a cinematic or a mood-centric uh, aesthetic. So it, it developed over time. Mm -hmm. um, there were a couple instances where we had contact with a couple of bands who were uh, working outside that, but circumstances were such that those connections never came to anything. <coughs> so, um, and, and what year was that when you uh, released the first Le Bradford record? It was in November of 1993. Okay, okay. So if we um, talk, so how, where, and when, it must have been soon after that, I'm going to guess, when you got introduced to the music of Lowe. It was very soon after that. Uh, and a funny coincidence, Le Bradford's first single was put out by a gentleman named Andrew Bojan, who lived in Virginia at the time, still does, Arlington. And... Uh, Shortly thereafter, within a year or so, Andrew contacted us and said, hey, I have this new band called Eggs. I'm in and we're playing at the Empty Bottle in Chicago. You ought to come out and say hello and make sure to arrive early because this band called Glow is opening for us and they're really great. We had uh, taken out a couple of ads in Alan Sparhawk's fanzine. So we were aware of Alan. So we got to the Empty Bottle Extra early. There's this trio on stage playing very quietly, very intently. Not a lot of people there, but we uh, we were knocked on our collective ass. They were just great. Uh, so we kept in touch with them from that point forward. And then an opportunity arose to work with them. 
It's funny because I heard, um, you know, a lot of people have been sort of replaying old interviews um, recently, and I heard an interview in which Mim said she was, she, um, when they were looking to get out of their original label, Vernon Yard, she had thought about Cranky and she thought they weren't cool enough for the label, which I thought was hilarious because Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to guess that there was some, it seems like one of those things where um everybody thinks that everybody else is 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 too awesome to be able to work with them that's exactly it i mean <laughs> we, we would go and see them play whenever they were in chicago we would shoot the breeze um number one it's it's always nice to be thought of as cooler than everybody else uh one of the uh Amazing things about Mim and Alan and the band in general is that in this underground world of avant-garde experimentalism, et cetera, et cetera, they always appeared to be heteronormally normal. Uh, and so... Uh, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. It says a lot about Mim and her uh, her connection to uh, the world in general and the way she carried herself and how she thought of herself. Um, but we, uh, from our perspective, on the flip side, we did a, a 12-inch EP with them, Songs for a Dead Pilot, and we thought, oh, of well, Burning Yard has collapsed. Here's an opportunity to work with this band. Surely a bigger indie rock label, your Matador, your Touch and Go, your Sub Pop, will uh, snatch these guys up immediately. They were very successful. They toured the United States. They toured the UK. They're on a pretty prominent label. Uh, We thought... This has got to be, you know, as the business school lingo goes, low-lying fruit. (laughs) Somebody else is going to, you know, somebody else is going to make that decision. And every step of the way after uh, Science for a Dead Pilot, nobody, nobody got in touch with them. So we did an album. Okay, now Sub Pop (laughs) or Matador or Touch and Go are going to sign this band. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Second record. Okay, it's been a great run. Wow, how fantastic it is to work with these people. Oh, look, we're going to put out their records in Japan. Surely, Sub Pop or Matador. I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago uh, for a book event, and I put it out on, uh, on Twitter. I said it would be great if somebody from Sub Pop comes, comes by because I have some questions. <laughs> uh. It's um it's it's funny because they're the kind of band that um and it was the same thing for me too you know our mutual friend Mike Greenlees took me to see them right after their first mm-hmm. album came out at the Empty Bottle and he was like I love this record and I think you should you should come with me to see this band and I it was the same thing like instantly instantly like blown away by this band and but but it also seems like the kind of thing and i think this is probably true for a lot of bands on your label that like not everybody got you know mm-hmm. but if you got it you really really got it um i mean like what do you think it was about them 
that would that like that like inspired that intense reaction from their fan base um beauty <laughs> the uh the juxtaposition of beauty and i'll say this an element of sonic ugliness uh i use the word intention a lot with them because it was Obviously, music that had been thought out, uh, prepared. They were so focused around the gaps in the music, the use of silence, Mim's drumming, you know, which was such a dovetailed everything together so nicely. Um, I think that's what that's what got it, and just. As a listener, you were waiting for everything, you know, whether it was the harmonies, a single voice, a guitar solo, even a drum beat, a bass line. There were other there were other groups that had done that before. It was no, you know, it was uh, you know, Galaxy Five Hundred were working mm -hmm. that vein. Low would do Cody. things like yeah, yeah Codeine. Lo would do things like cover Joy Division. You'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. Alan's guitar playing, especially as the years passed, he started to uh, reflect more and more on uh, Crazy Horse and Neil Young mm -hmm. uh, without being derivative. Um, always pointing to things or nodding towards certain things, but always in their own style. I think that had a lot to do with it. And they were, like Le Bradford, counter to the prevailing currents of the day. It always amazed me, too. You, I think you mentioned this, how much tension they brought into music that was so slow and quiet, too. Because yeah. when I think of bands that had tension, you think of like a band like Gang of Four, right? Like where you feel mm -hmm. like they've really like stretched a rubber Taunus, band that's about right? to break. Exactly. Yeah. And And this was like the polar opposite of that, but the exact same effect where it's just like every it's just like you felt your your like like your skin was electrified or something when you were listening to them you know yeah like that uh the moment when a rainstorm is coming in and you smell the rain right you smell the humidity maybe there's a little you feel your hairs rise up because of the anticipation of lightning that's I once yeah, I once uh, trafficked it. Yeah, I once wrote something about, uh, and I was trying to um, describe a moment in a song by Sigaros, and I described the only way I could find was the moment when the sun appears from behind a wall of clouds, and it was mm -hmm. a lot like that, you know, just like those, like those, like quiet explosions of um, emotion or feeling, and you know, as a band and you 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 kind of mentioned this too they seem to be very real you know and i didn't yeah. know them aside from a couple of you know awkward merch table encounters but but um they, they their songs were very real and it felt like they were sharing their lives with us you know mm -hmm. and when i think about like the the passion of the fan base and the way that they established that fashion and i and i don't think this was intentional i think they were just very much being their real authentic selves with 
their with their people. And like I, mm-hmm. I think about this a lot, especially when during the pandemic they were doing those instagram lives on fridays right and they would sit in their basement and they would play and you could hear them talking to their kids in the background and then like alan would take you on a tour of his garden and stuff like this or show you how they pack their van for tours and stuff and it was just like they were just very real and human with other people and i think i think there's a certain class of people that really responds to that yeah i would um in my mind I always compare them because they were a band with a couple, mm-hmm. a married couple. So there's a certain dynamic. There can be a dynamic in that. And um, I always, this is this is funny because they are polar opposites in some ways. I always compare them in my mind to the Laughing Hyenas, a band I was mm-hmm. very close with personally. The Laughing Hyenas had John and Larissa. In that band, they were a couple. There was a dynamic there, right? It was apparent. It was in some ways tenser. It was in some ways uh, potential. There was a potential there, a negativity, a potential for negativity. Um, but it was sort of at the center of the band when they played. You could see it. You could sense it. Same thing with Lowe. Different people, different vibes, if I can use that word. But it was the centerpiece of the band, which is not to dismiss the contributions of the bass players in the group, mm-hmm. uh, all of whom in, you know, in various stages of the band had made a contribution and, you know, as a bass guitarist does underpins and powers everything but uh for a lot of people alan and mimi were uh someone they could associate with they could associate with their relationships it was uh, different than a lot of what they were seeing in other indie rock bands underground rock bands at the time functioning marriage mm-hmm. children uh a life that included the band, but more than the band, and people could associate with that. And there were various songs and things. I was thinking about the song Two Step, right? The various things lyrically and sonically they did that were touchstones that people could associate with in their lives. Uh, a little older, maybe, than... Uh, Bands that were that were quoting uh, the usual indie rock reference points, right? Then, um, the first record, uh, "You Are My Sunshine," like little bits of musical references that go back, you know, almost pre World War II, right? Uh, little things that you hear or that you thought about as a kid, or you heard in church, or uh, your parents playing old records and things like that. There was a warmth there. Uh, that I think a lot of people identified with and took on. One of my favorite covers of theirs was their cover of uh, John Denver's Back Home Again, which is the same kind of ideal, you know, this whole thing about, um, about, about home and family and about feeling like you have a place in the world, you know, and, and that's the same thing. Yeah. Okay. It's time for a Steve Albini story. 
<laughs> so um I think it was Secret Name. Uh, they did two records on Cranky that Steve Albini recorded. Uh, and on one of the sessions or one of these times, uh, Alan was talking to Steve about the band Bread, the 70s soft rock mm -hmm. band Bread. You can, you can easily, I can easily imagine Alan listening to Bread, enjoying Bread, thinking about bread and incorporating it into Lowe's music or, you know, as an influence. Albini, uh, being a relatively open-minded person, apparently, got a bread cassette, and when Shellac were on tour, he put it in the tour van, put it in the tape deck, listened to about 10 seconds of it, ripped it out, and threw it out the window. <laughs> Uh, that sounds very uh, believable. True fact. <laughs> um, I think I think another thing that um, was really special about the band, and you know, both of us discovered them through their live shows, and they were a really special live band too. I mean, um, especially if they were in, you know, I saw them a couple of times opening for other bands that maybe wasn't as conducive and environment mm -hmm. for them. But when they were in front of their fans who were respectful and understood them, those shows were like, they were, they were so spiritual, you know? Um, and there was something really special about them. Like, like, and they changed so much over the years. Like they had such mm -hmm. an eclectic, discography and their shows changed over the years but but in some ways they didn't you know because like alan would always he always had a way of like interacting with the crowd you know he would you would get to the end of a gig and start taking requests and stuff mm -hmm. like that you know and kind of breaking down those barriers at least until i feel like they kind of they kind of started like as they moved into their latest era like having their live gigs be a little more controlled than that. But, um, but like, what do you, what do you remember about going to see them and what made them such a special live act? Cause one of the things that I'm always like, I'm always like fascinated by is how I feel like there's, there's like, there's like, you know, when you go see a band, there's it's a very communal experience you know mm -hmm. it's like it's like you are sharing in this experience with a group of people and with the band and it all comes together in something that's amazing and i really felt that at at their gigs so uh i'm thinking of three particular things one something i read in the wake of men's passing various people reflecting upon the point in time when low as a band would find their audience members shushing people who were talking. That was a transition point. I think of uh, three shows in particular. Oh, one, at some point, Joel and I drove from Chicago to Beloit, Wisconsin, to Beloit College to see them play a show in a sort of the prototypical student bar or rat skeller or union or something tiny little place um, just a beautiful show with a small group of people that were there to see low and nobody else uh, that was that was very memorable uh, sort of the flip side of that is around the same time 
we saw them play at Logan Square Auditorium in Chicago, which is a I don't you must have seen shows there. Yeah. Second second story of a big sort of office building, uh, pretty big sized room. It's about a thousand people at least, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not very good sonically. Sort of a echo chamber. Um, very very hard to to get a good uh, a good sense of the band there, but that was a that was a very memorable show because I thought the band met those challenges and went beyond them. And Alan really kicked out some amazing guitar solos. He was in that was a heart of his uh, Neil Young obsession. Really noisy, loud, tangly solos in the uh, in the midst of these songs that were just this amazing juxtaposition. Um, and then uh, just because it was recent and because of uh, events in April, I went to see them play here in uh, Urbana at a uh, place called the Channing Murray Foundation, which is a Unitarian chapel on campus. So they played in this beautiful church chapel and uh, they finished their set and they're playing music from the last two sub pop records. So there was a lot of fractured electronics, uh, manipulation of everything, including uh, vocals. And uh, they finished their regular set. They come out for the encore and Alan says to the audience, do you want to hear the one that sounds like Roy Orbison or the one that sounds like Flipper? <laughs> and that was like such a beautiful summation of the territory they worked. Especially you know, in could, recent years. Yeah. Yeah. That they could go from, you know, Roy Orbison to me, who is always the voice of yearning, beautiful, clear voice of yearning, to Flipper, who are the sound of a trudge. Mm -hmm. uh, and they end up playing a song called Canada, which the crowd said Flipper, too, which really surprised yeah. me. <laughs> it surprised me, one, that they, would, that they would know the band, and two, that they would say it. Because I've been to shows in Urbana-Champaign, where kids don't recognize it, they're watching an all Venom cover band. <laughs> um, so louder music is not for a lot of people here. Is not on their uh, not on their um, the menu, I guess. So that's uh, those are three shows that really struck out struck to me, and then the uh, you know the Abana show, especially in light of. Uh, events afterwards because it was their second to last show. Mm -hmm. um, so those were those were th three instances in addition to the that first performance that were just uh, you know stick out in my memory. 
Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing them. The last time I saw them was on their last tour before this for Double Negative. They had unfortunately not gotten to the West Coast on this tour. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I remember they played a song off of their first album called Lazy. And it was, um, it was amazing to me how they at a point where their sound was as far removed from that record as you could possibly get managed to take it and warp it and turn it into something that made sense and mm -hmm. it was really really incredible and their and their recent records i really felt were like that it was like they had deconstructed everything that they were as a band and put it all back together in a way that was utterly and completely different but still unmistakably them which is not uh, which is no small feat name me someone else who's done it yeah 25 totally. years into the yeah. lifetime of their band you know i could think maybe i was thinking about this when double negative came out and the only uh the only artist i could think of who had made such a similar change was Tom Waits when uh, Frank's Wild Years came out. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, however many years into his career, that was the only artist I, that came to my mind. They, they they picked up a new toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things that's come out of <clears throat> Mim's passing is that when you connect with your people that deeply, um, it, those those losses hit so much harder. And like again, I didn't know them personally, but having seen them and followed them and felt like I was because they invited us all into their lives, and mm -hmm. now it feels like I, you know, I I remember posting to Twitter after I saw them on that double negative tour. It's like, it's like they feel like family to me. And it's yeah. not, it's not anyone, and it's not for any reason other than because they let us, they were so open-hearted to let us into their lives. And mm -hmm. now when that loss happens, I feel I I I feel it very in some ways selfishly because I was dying i had tickets to see them for three shows on this tour i was dying to mm -hmm. see them that new record is is so incredible but also just like just like feeling it personally in my gut you know and i felt mm -hmm. like i've seen in the writing that i've seen and in the um in the you know in the reaction of fans and their loss that like this just seems to cut so much more deeply than so many other of the artist deaths that we've had to live through. I mean, we were talking mm -hmm. before we recorded about how Terry Hall just died. Mm -hmm. And I think even back to like when David Bowie died and it's like nothing, I, I, I can't remember the last time I felt something like this. And I think that's the reason because, because of who they were and who they tried to be as a band. And now it's like, that was amazing, but now it's also very painful. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of things that struck me. Um, number one is cancer, mm -hmm. right? Um, and ovarian cancer and cancer uh, affecting women, and uh, that uh, that was very had a very powerful impact on me personally. This is, uh, my wife Annie and I lost a dear friend. 
to ovarian cancer. So and sort of two pronged, right? Mm-hmm. In shorter, in relatively short order, too. Um, the your comment about David Bowie is interesting because um, you he, David Bowie had such a, and, and a similar impact on a lot mm-hmm. of people's lives. Emotionally, they connected with him because of his, for many reasons, not the least of which is his. Uh, is epitomizing uh, a, a daring around issues of gender and sexuality mm-hmm. that a lot of people d- uh, associated with and hadn't seen among other performers. In Lowe's case, in Mim's case, in a strange way, uh, I think she had a similar uh, influence on people just in terms of what we were talking about earlier about uh, family life, normality, and the way they carried themselves, um, you know, the sort of Midwestern, low-key, slightly sardonic, not very imposing, but confident people doing what they uh, what they wanted to do. You know, it's... Uh, it's not as though they were pandering to people or saying, okay, this is a song about my daughter growing up and how I wish I could hold on to her little body. <laughs> in um, metal, right, yes. In metal, right, but that's what the song is about and you hear it and you're like, wow. You know, I can associate with that in a lot of ways, whether it's in my own child, a sibling, a pet, a friend, mm-hmm. that, that feeling of wanting time to stop. Um, I can think of tons of songs like that. Um, you know, again, I talk about a two-step uh, has that sort of feeling to me. Uh, it's evocative mm-hmm. of a lot of uh, experiences and feelings that people have. People want to have. Point of Disgust was another one that I always think of that way, yeah. where it's just like, it, it's, it seems to be, and you know, most of their most of their records, most of their songs had like eight lines of lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. and then they but they would they would do and say so much in those eight lines that it would just really really hit you, you know, mm-hmm. or mystery, yeah, you no, know, like um, they had recorded the record Trust. Um, they were going out on tour at that point. I'd seen them a lot of times, and they were. Uh, working on a song called Silver Rider, which ended up on the first record they did for Dutch, uh, for Sub Pop. So I'd heard it a lot, and it really struck me. And it's um, it's a mystery song. It's almost mythic, mm-hmm. you know. Um, a murderer, the same way, you know, not a. Silver Rider, you know, there's some, it's like this, uh, this notion of someone out there, something coming. Maybe, uh, you know, something ominous that you can't name, you can't put your finger on. Um, they were very good lyrically and structurally of uh, pointing at something but not being 
obvious about it, not being mm-hmm. uh, not hitting you over the head with it. Um, one of the things that Joel and I insisted on when we were starting Cranky was we had what we called the Cranky Commandments. And they were mostly thou shalt nots. Mm-hmm. And one of them was thou shalt not print song lyrics because we as listeners growing up we like that notion of what's this about I have no mm-hmm. idea I have my own mental image that these sounds and these lyrics bring up to me and lower like that you know you could take a lot out of the music but it was a very it was a very individualized for me experience and I'm sure for a lot of other people and that's how they made that connection, that emotional connection. <clears throat> um, I mean, they did um, what three three LPs and an EP for you at mm-hmm. Cranky, right? right? And I would say, you know, that was kind of a transitional period for them in a lot of ways. Like as they came out of sort of, you know their first three records Mm -hmm. and then especially with things we lost in the fire and trust started getting a little bit more, I don't want to say like a rock band feel, but you know, started bringing in actual distorted guitars Mm -hmm. and a little more straightforward songwriting, which then probably continued more into the records they did at sub pop, like great destroyer and stuff. But um, like, what was it like watching them, you know, sort of transform themselves slowly but surely as as they put out those records and did you like like what did you think about them as you started to hear them it was it's it was interesting for me because um while they were doing this other bands on the label were making were developing their sound too mm-hmm. and so um i always thought of low in a group of bands, La Bradford were doing uh, the same thing. Every record was a development on the previous record. Every album introduced elements that weren't there in the first, in the previous one. And it was also experiential because La Bradford were, uh, played some shows with Lowe. Lowe, at this point in time, they took uh, Godspeed to Black Emperor. Mm-hmm on tour with them. They sort of introduced Godspeed to the continent, so to speak. So I saw those three bands in particular as being linked in my mind and in in my daily work, my interactions with all of them. So it was a, uh, it was just this feeling of, oh, we're working with these people that are developing their sound and bringing new things all the time, but remain, but, maintain these central identities. So that's sort of how I, that's kind of how I looked at it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I I had sort of a worm's eye view, right? So I mm-hmm. was, I was uh, considering how they were doing their business, how they were, uh, the relationship with the label, uh, the touring arrangements, how they, you know, my my interaction with them, hey, can you do this interview? Hey, can you show up at this radio station? Et cetera, et cetera. So the artistic development to me was interlocked with all those other things. Um, 
And then, you know, to be honest, after they left Cranky, uh, my wife and I listened to Great Destroyer a lot. We really liked that record. But I didn't really follow them that much on Sub mm -hmm. Pop until Double Negative. Uh, and I thought for a certain point from what I heard at Sub Pop, the Sub Pop records in between The Great Destroyer and Double Negative, they're like, oh, they're, they're sort of coalescing more into a standard indie rock band. Uh, and then they blew that all up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would agree that... Um... I loved Great Destroyer. I really actually loved Drums and Guns, but mm -hmm. Come On and Invisible Way, I definitely felt were much more standard. Like I thought this was, um, you know, they seemed to be developing into a groove. It was, and it was a good groove and a groove I liked, but you know, it was, you know, you started to see the glimmers of what was to come in ones and sixes, but double negative yeah. and hey, what were just, were just like so they were just such statements, you know? Like, yeah, well, Double Negative was like, uh, the funny thing about that was if I was writing a cliched rock music mm -hmm. movie, it would be like, uh, Mim and Alan go to Berlin. <laughs> and uh, live in a bunker, you know, like a, <laughs> like a David, like a Bowie Eno thing. You know, they're like, we're not listening to indie rock. Hans over here introduced me to techno, and that's all I've been listening to. Uh, but well, but it's like you know we talked earlier about how they like deconstructed themselves and they kept that heart in it. Like yeah. like 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 hey, I, I read an interview <coughs> with their producer BJ Burton, and he pointed out that there are no drums uh, or bass on Hey What other than the last song. It's like the entire mm. album is all distorted guitar, and you hear a song like days like these which is just like like you know it's very simple but it is also extremely loud and in your face and torn mm -hmm. apart but the heart of that song lyrically is just everything they've always been um it's the and, singing it's yeah. mim and alan singing if a fetching melody there's no other way you know in my mind to describe it yeah, it's a fetching melody. It's just all this stuff going around it, but you wait for those voices to come back through the whole song. Yeah, just more is another song. It. Yeah, more is another song that's like that, mm -hmm. where it's just like you could not get more industrial musically, and you could not cut through it more with the voice of an angel than you did, and right. uh, and that that contrast, I think, is part of what really made it work. Right, and the that element that you know you almost you knew as a matter of faith was going to show up. Yeah. Which, um, you know, for someone like me, who is like, uh, we recently uh, were having our bathrooms renovated and uh, saws pounding, things being torn apart. One of the guys working in the house says, uh, I'm sorry, this must really bother you. And I said, no, buddy, that's 80% of my record collection. <laughs> Uh, you know, so for me, all those right. those elements are uh, welcome, mm -hmm. right? They're uh, I can say, oh, you're doing this, like this guy does, and he's, you know, Andy Stott. Okay, I see that. I got a little test department in there. That's cool. <laughs> but for people that uh, are not, you know, putting their head in a Boeing seven four seven engine, 
uh, for fun. Those for fun. Those those things might be a little alienating or a little disturbing, but then the voices come back, mm-hmm. and that's that element there. So there's a little something for everyone. Um, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I always felt like, um, in some ways, I mean, obviously, Low were very much a band from Duluth, but I always felt like in some ways with Cranky and with them recording with Steve and coming through town constantly, you know, on tour being so close, like, it felt to me at least like Chicago was a little bit of a second home for them. And, um, oh, yeah, uh. Well, you know, the the first EP they did for Cranky had a song called Hey Chicago. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, I think I've I've always found it interesting that cities can S- Chicago as an independent music city has, you know, had different phases, but it seemed like there's always something really cool going on there. And you look back to the Wax Tracks era Mm -hmm. or Touch and Go or Cranky or, you know, even back into like the blues era and stuff, you know, and Drag City and on and on. Mm -hmm. And um, like, what do you think it is about Chicago as a city that has attracted that sort of like music community to it and brought bands and like those unique, those unique scenes together? I mean, it's a part of it has to do with geography and physicality, mm-hmm. right? The transportation hub, the fact that uh, Louis Armstrong can take a train up from New Orleans and find a find a place in Chicago to play. Uh, likewise, you know, Chess Era Blues, the AACM. Uh, I was. Recently, you know, I've been doing these book sh- book tour, this book tour around town and around places, and went to Austin, Texas, and told people, believe it or not, there was a time when people moved from Austin to Chicago, <laughs> and not vice versa. Um, it's a it's a capital of the Midwest, so almost uh, by nature. Whether it's people from the suburbs of Chicago or Michigan or Ohio or Indiana, Iowa, they come to people of all sorts come to Chicago to pursue their careers, etc. That's got something to do with it. Um, unlike New York or Los Angeles, it's not a national media hub, mm-hmm. uh, so people can be musically ambitious but not career ambitious. Um, you know, so I compare, you know, New York has sort of a bucket of crabs feeling to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, every Everybody's reaching up to get that national attention and pulling down people that are in front of them. Our hierarchies develop more easily. Those don't seem to develop in Chicago. There's There's room for people to do things and there's room for people to collaborate um, and do things together. So I, you know, I think I think that has a lot to do with it, um, and then I think sometimes I think when people talk about geographic or cultural differences in the United States, uh, they get something wrong. They use the term Midwest, and I feel like you should use Great Lakes Basin. Mm. 
the, uh, the big cities along the Great Lakes, uh, the idea that they're all linked together by these lakes, commerce flows across them, uh, resources flow across them. Um, you know, for me, making the imaginary leap from looking at Lake Michigan to looking from Chicago to looking at Lake Superior from Duluth is not such a massive leap. There's a lot in common, I feel, environmentally almost. Cold helps <laughs> uh, yes. to imagine those things. Um, you know, little little things like that. Um, but Chicago is a Chicago is a very unique city. There's a lot going on there all the time, um, for better or for worse. Uh, you know, all the all the usual cliches apply, but the, you know the Nelson Algren uh, story about Chicago being a beautiful woman with a broken nose. I think that's. <laughs> I agree. That covers it. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, you know, I, and the last thing I was going to say is New York, Los Angeles, they're cities that celebrate themselves. Right? Uh, Chicago, a lot of Midwestern cities, not so much like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's more about it's more about people. Uh, you've obviously been working on, uh, you, you've mentioned this before, this book that you've written. Can you tell us about that and where people can find out more? Sure. Uh, the name of the book is You're With Stupid, <laughs> Cranky Chicago and the Reinvention of Indie Music. It's published by the University of Texas Press. It came out uh, November one in 2022 you can find it at all the places good books are sold um utpress.utexas.edu uh, is a url of the press website you can order it direct from them or uh your nearest independent bookstore I know you've been on tour with um, uh, doing some readings and stuff. How has that gone and how has the reception been? I know this is a new experience for you a bit. Yeah, it's uh, funny. I tell all my musician friends that intellectually under understood all the challenges they go through, but now it's uh, personal. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I, I've been to uh, Austin, Texas, Chicago two times. Uh, Seattle and Los Angeles. Uh, on the way between Seattle and Los Angeles, I stopped off in Portland uh, to commune with my cranky colleague, Joel Wetschke. And I asked him, how do bands do this? How do they do all this traveling? <laughs> and he says, they're younger. <laughs> That's true, yep. Um, and so it's been a great experience. I've run into a lot of people uh, I've known for years, people I only dealt with uh, remotely via the phone or by email. Uh, so that's been a, a really great experience for me. And uh, it's the response to the book has been very positive. I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to put out a book to begin with. Uh, 
and profoundly grateful for the response I've gotten from people all over the world. So, well, I know that I know that for me, it's been great to read because you know I feel like you know everybody everybody who who you know lives through formative years that are influential on, on them probably feels this way but i felt like that time in chicago was very special to me and was very special for a lot of reasons not just for cranky but for a lot of the other music mm-hmm. stuff that was happening in town you know touch and go was also at the top of their game and bands like the jesus lizard and tar were were out and, and killing it in chicago mm-hmm. and shellac and stuff and and i just felt like that was a really amazing time to be there and it's great that there's you know somebody out there documenting um their part of it well it um it was necessary mm-hmm. it was necessary to do uh the history has to be recorded and documented for people i also want to make it very clear that this whole entire project was not some sort of nostalgic Hey kids, you missed the best years of human existence. Uh, it's a, it's a, the book is a love letter to the city. It's a description of my, my time living there and whatever I did in music and what was happening around me. But I think it's also hopefully, uh, provides some inspiration for people, uh, to keep, to keep things going and to, uh, take, take, creative life by the reins and uh, pursue it. And, uh, you know, Chicago is still an amazing music city. There's still amazing things happening. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to the book to be infused with that rather than to be, you know, what I heard when I was young, which was more or less, if you weren't at Woodstock, you haven't lived. <laughs> yes. Well, I think you succeeded. Thank you. I, you know, I told you as we were getting ready for this interview that I was uh, preparing to be very sad, but um, I, I don't, I don't really feel that way. You know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, I'm just, you know, it's sad that this has happened, but I feel very lucky to have had this band in my life and, and that to have had Cranky in my life, who was, you know, a, um, who was, you know, a label that I dearly loved for a long time too. And I loved the work that you and Joel did as a part of it. So, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me today. Thanks. Uh, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. Now, and we've seen things, you know, and had these experiences that have enriched our lives and these people that we come across. Um, you know, so I think about Mim and I, I think about the uh, the phrase, and may her memory be a blessing, and it has been. And that's yeah. how I'm going to continue to think about it. I completely agree. So, yeah, thanks for coming. You betcha. Anytime. Thanks for listening to This Must Be The Place. You can find out more or subscribe at thismustbetheplacepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at tmbtp underscore podcast. Our theme was composed by Will from America, and our logo was designed by Marissa Epstein. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.